The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. Welcome back to The Process. It is 2022. You made it. Um, not only to, uh, part two of season three, uh, but also through the craziness that has been the last few years. Um, so welcome. Hopefully you're not listening to this 30 years in the future from some dystopian, uh, bunker, but rather you're in the comfort of your own home, uh, maybe sipping some tea or possibly doing your laundry. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy part two of season three as we have a lot of amazing guests uh, lined up um, for the remainder of the season. And what better way to start that trend off than to talk to legendary composer Elizabeth Rahm today, as well as new music advocate and flute performer uh, Jay Marsh, as well as one of the classical or one of the recording geniuses behind a lot of the classical music uh, coming out of Toronto and Canada, Robert DeVito. This is one of those episodes where I wish the format of this podcast was like three hours long because we could just, you know, we could really deep dive into things. And uh, as you know, I, you know, often talk about the creative cogitations towards the end of each episode. And uh, towards the end, Robert actually brought up uh, one of the classic questions, and, and we were about to actually end the interview, and uh, he requested that we kind of address this one, and everyone else was interested in it as well, and weighed in, and that was the starving artist trope. And I think half of you now are probably like, oh yeah, I let's talk about that, and the other half maybe are just sighing in disappointment, like do we really have to talk about this again? And, and that's sort of the way I feel about it. I, I feel like, yeah, this is something we need to talk about and address this idea of the starving artist, but I'm also just so bored and so tired of it um, because it tends to be this sort of kind of corrosive trope that I'm not really sure who made it up. Is it artists who are struggling and are kind of resentful of that? Or is it just kind of like a, a business kind of capitalist mindset uh, that doesn't understand the value of art or can't quantify it or in general, why you would suffer doing anything. I'll let the experts be the voices for this discussion. So without further ado, let's learn more about Elizabeth, Jay, and Robert, and hear excerpts from Northern Lights on the Flute in the Wild album on the Center Discs label. 
Elizabeth Rahm's works have been heard throughout North America, Europe, South America, China, Japan, and Russia. She has also written for film and video and has won numerous awards for her scores in this genre. She has been commissioned by such prestigious organizations as the Winnipeg Ballet, the Calgary Philharmonic, Symphony Nova Scotia, the Nexus Percussion Ensemble, the Ottawa International Chamber Music Festival, and the St. Lawrence String Quartet. Her opera, The Garden of Alice, has recently been filmed by the Pacific Opera Victoria with Tracy Dahl singing the lead role. Her works have been featured on over 40 commercial CDs, including How Bodies Leave Aesthetic Marks, which was the winning entry for Best Classical Composition for the 2008 Western Music Award. In 2004, she was awarded an honorary doctorate in humane letters from Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax. In November 2010, she was given the Saskatchewan Order of Merit, and in 2013, the Canadian Composer Award for the Canadian Band Association. She is included in the New Grove's Dictionary of Music and Musicians, the New Grove Dictionary of Opera, and the New Grove's Dictionary of Women Composers, as well as numerous other publications. Recently, Rahm completed several flute works as part of an international online flute festival, Flute Music by Women Composers, organized in part by the Scarborough Philharmonic Orchestra in collaboration with Heidi K. Begay of Flute 360 Podcast, as well as she was commissioned by flutist Jay Marsh to write two major works for flute, harp, and bassoon for her newly released CD, Flute in the Wild. Jay Marsh is a Canadian flutist and is the driving force behind the factor-funded Flute in the Wild project, new music that takes you into the wild spaces of Canada through a flute lens. The recording is being carried on the Center Discs label, and the project was recently awarded grants from the Canadian Council of the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Robert DeVito is the creative director and lead engineer of Society of Sound. The Toronto-based production company has worked with clients like Universal Music, BMG Music, Sony Music, EMI, and many others. Society of Sound has collaborated with ensembles like the Canadian Brass, the Toronto Symphony, the Canadian Opera Company, and the National Ballet of Canada. In 2016, Robert was nominated for a Juno under Record of the Year for classical albums and in the category Large Ensemble. On today's episode, we hear excerpts from Elizabeth Rahm's Northern Lights, featuring Jay Marsh on flute, Heidi Elise Bearcroft on harp, and percussion by Andrew Morris. The album Flute in the Wild is carried on the Center Discs label. Elizabeth, let's start with where the creative process begins for you. Oh, let's see now. <laughs> yeah. That's that's always uh, a little bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's I'll I'll have a vague idea of what I want to do, 
And if yeah. I think about it enough, it's like, you know, have you ever gone to sleep on a problem and you wake up and the answer is yeah. there? It's yes. very much like that. So I start yeah. out with wanting to write something, uh, Northern Lights. I'm not even sure how I started that. That was a kind of a rewrite of another piece. But when I started that uh, for, for um, years ago, I wanted to write something. It was for a dancer and for a flute player, a friend of mine, and tape. That was a long time ago. It was tape. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I still call it tape. I, oh, good. I okay. Okay. <laughs> so it just kind of, it has its own life. It kind of grows as, as you go along. A little bit yeah. like dreaming in a way, yeah. Yeah. But, but putting uh, uh, um, notes to a dream. Usually when you dream, you forget what you dreamed, but you right, have yes, to hurry I, up and do it. In fact, yeah. sometimes I'll get a great idea and if I don't write it down, it's gone. Yeah, that instantaneous idea. Yeah. yeah and and then it's it's ephemeral. Yeah. Where does that begin when you're trying to capture uh, you know, the the butterfly in the in the jar? Where where is that where is that happening? Is that happening in front of the piano? Is that happening uh, in front of a computer? Where where does that initial process begin? In the old days, it happened in front of the piano. Yeah. And I, some people have the ability to have the kind of ear where they can write yeah. and, you know, they get it from their yeah. head. I need a keyboard. Sure. And it happens in front of the piano. Now, uh, I, I was in a situation where I had to write very quickly. And I had learned finale. Uh, the fellow asked me to write him a sonata, and I didn't have time. So I, I figured if I do it on the computer, I can copy and paste. And that'll take, <laughs> you know, that's so much faster. And yep. uh, yep. that's when I first started using the computer. I didn't think I could because it was so mechanical that I thought, uh, you know, that's, that's taking away from the, uh, what's internal. When you use the keyboard and you use your, your hand and your pencil, that's internal. But with a computer, it, you're thinking about what keys to push. Well, darn if I didn't switch over. <laughs> yeah, and now yeah. I have to do, you know, your brain. It's like, you know, they, they have these glasses where, you, where you're twisted around. And after a while, the people um, see things right. And then when they take them off, this has been an experiment. Everything's upside down again. Right. And, right. and that's what kind of happened was, was I, uh, I just became much more comfortable with the computer, although I always have to play things again on the keyboard, on the piano, because yeah. there's something about uh, the vibrations of my fingers tell me when it's right. And a piano, yeah. and it can't be an electronic piano, it has to be an acoustic piano. Yeah, the physicality of it. Yeah, yeah. well, and I, I think it's the vibrations. So Jay, where ideally do you like to join the creative process? Well, I like to be there kind of towards the middle, towards the end, I guess. I like to be involved once I actually have something to play, um, for sure. But then I like the freedom, especially Betsy's very flexible that way, um, to, where I can make suggestions that are more idiomatic or even sometimes just um, ensemble, especially with uh, the, the pieces for this album. They're not solos, they're ensemble pieces. And everything changes once you get the people in the room. And mm -hmm. being able to mold it still with those other people in that creative process because I'm more of a, a collaborator. One of my other hats is, is an editor. I can right. write, but I actually feel much better 
with a partially formed clay as it were and then yeah. and then adding my two bits i like to to work with things that already exist that's definitely something uh, work that i do as an engineer i feel that way and robert is that where you like to sort of join the process we were just talking about this sort of the, the writing process most of the time they come to me uh, they'll come to me with, you know, performers and a piece in mind, at which point then I sort of need to join the creative process in terms of trying to decode what I think uh, would translate best in a, a two-dimensional recording uh, or one, you know, like in stereo. So then you, you need to sort of decode what you think it sounds like coming off the page and how you are going to um, position it within a stereo field. And then it comes into play as to uh, what acoustic would best help this music. Um, and so then you're trying to fit all those pieces into some of the decision making. Okay, so this hall would be great, but this hall won't work. This hall has a piano, this hall does not. Um, do we put uh, the percussion in the center? Or do we put the harp in the center? Um, and then you're sort of looking at the lines and seeing uh, you know, how the composers composed it and where you think some of those lines would best be served in terms of the recording. You know, Elizabeth, that makes me wonder, so what are you doing when you're in the studio? And, um, you know, are you having prior conversations with Robert about this? And Jay, um, do you like to be sort of a producer in the studio? Do you just like to be hands off? Do you just pace nervously back and forth? <laughs> I, I, I do a lot of that. Um, wh wh where, where do you find yourself uh, fitting in in the studio? I, I was fascinated. Mm -hmm. I stood right behind him. And, yes. <laughs> um, and what was, I, there were certain spots that would make it so dramatic. For instance, the harp, the harp in one spot in um, Bridal Bale Falls. And yeah. I wanted it really loud in that spot. Well, he can do that without yes. overshooting, you know. Right. And yeah. and it just made such a difference. It made it so dramatic. Now, if we had a performance, if, if we were working on it, and I yeah. kept saying to the harp, can you play that louder? Can you play that louder? You know, that, that takes away from it. Whereas he can do it. And, and not annoy anyone, and it just, it's just, he can do it so beautifully, and he has such control over the sounds. A good technician can, yeah. can do so many things with the sound and make it sound wonderful. Now, mind you, you have to start out with a good performance, but then when you get the good recording afterwards, that's an awful lot to do with the, the producer. interesting because it started as a piece for flute and tape mm -hmm. and, right. and yeah. Jay needed something quickly for a, a, a grant application and so I gave her that piece but she wanted 
to play with a harp. So I took yeah. what I had written for the um, on the tape and I rewrote it for harp, uh, part of it. And then, I, in fact, I rewrote the whole thing for harp tape. I had to reproduce the, the sounds and uh, in flute. And then uh, the the woman originally who was going to play harp, her husband was a percussionist. So that's how that started. And uh, and you know I thought you know that's that's a great idea because you know one of the best sounds is uh, the baseball and the cymbal. You know that sound? Yes. Oh, yes. I love yeah. it. There are so many sounds that you can get. They also have a wind machine. All of these things are much better done analog by a person. And they can also do them with expression. And they can go along with the flute and the harp. You know, the whole, it's, it's so much better to play with people than a recording. So I wrote a percussion part. And, and as it ended up, uh, Heidi came and played the harp. And uh, Andy played the um, uh, percussion. We got together. I, he brought all his equipment. He, he has a, a percussion store. So he had everything. Throughout the whole inventory. Oh, whole inventory. yeah, that was about it. He did. He sent me a, a list of everything he had. Uh, it was, you know, it was like a kid in Toyland or something. I, I could do anything. I, yep. All of these <laughs> instruments to play with. And, of course, he's great on all of them. And the other thing that was really good is he has a sense. He's very musical. He kind of sensed what I wanted. So he would uh, do his own thing sometimes, and I put it in the part. So, uh, you know, I would say, okay, I have too much of this or that or not enough of this or that, and, and I yeah. would put what he did so that the next person that plays it, if it's not him, will sure. do it the same way. So that was kind of a collaboration, actually. Here was my, uh, sort of as a recording question, I wondered because it felt like everything in the kitchen sink was available, you know, yeah, every, like yeah. all the all the tools. Did this, Robert, did this pose a problem for you? A problem maybe is a strong word, but a challenge. No, it was fantastic that she she took it to a real percussionist because there's some of those cymbal swells and things like that just would not have translated as well from, from uh, let's say, a tape uh, per se. The, the difficulty I, I didn't find was capturing it was, it was really more in the producing and editing part of it because Andy would approximate some of the things. So, okay. you know, the cymbal mm -hmm. roll might not be as loud or might not be as long, or uh, the, the trail off of a note may be cut off earlier than an, on another take. And so what ha would happen was when you're piecing this together, you'd find that you'd go and splice it with another take and you'd find, well, he, yeah. the, you know, the roll ended on that take, but it's still right. carrying over on that take. And so I can't use yeah. that, but that's yeah. where Jay sounded the best. And Elizabeth, as a composer, does that make you feel excited that the musicians are expressing and, oh, yeah, or definitely. does that drive you crazy? Because no, some no, people no, are it, like, play it, it the way I... Yeah. No, no, I, I would, you know, I, I have a theory that once the composer's done with it, it goes to the performer. And now assuming that you have good performers, right. and then it's theirs, you mm. know, then, then it's their creative energy that goes into making the piece. And that's that's why people play. I wouldn't never compare myself to Beethoven, but they'll do sure. the same Beethoven over and over, and every time it'll be done differently by different people, and that's what's wonderful about it. I don't want it to be the same all the time.
I really wanted to dissect what you were talking about with the starving artist. Oh, crazy. It, it is a very interesting term to me. The because, starving artist. Uh, yeah. The starving artist, because I, 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 Jay-Z just got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. And, uh, he, during his acceptance speech, he talked about how much we suffer for our art. And yes. I never think of Jay-Z suffering because Jay-Z's, no. Jay-Z's got <laughs> no, billions no. of dollars. He has a clothing line. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in some ways, when you talk about being a starving artist, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a metaphor for, I think, you know, um, suffering for your art. Now, mm-hmm. the question that I find fascinating is, mm-hmm. for art to be great, do you need to suffer for it? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I almost think that that's that's the most authentic art that you're going to create is in some ways if you're suffering for it because if you're literally doing it for money and nothing mm-hmm. else you're not putting your authentic self into it because there is the the motivating factor around it is just compensation and i'm not saying that you can't have compensation but you're probably your most authentic self is when you give 18 hours into something that's probably going to pay you for half an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but I, I go back to, and I'll, I'll let uh, Betsy speak on this, but I, I'll go back to what she said earlier about there was, there was, there was a, uh, something missing in her life and, or, you know, like what, not to be too, too dramatic here, but, but the composition was something that she was searching for. Yeah. Right. Oh Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, you know, if you talk about how much do I get paid? <laughs> that just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we won't. We'll edit it. that out. Yeah. <laughs> it. It's, it's a good fact, example. It, it's, it yeah. comes, becomes kind of a joke. If someone, especially back then, if someone just mentioned my writing something, I do it, and I couldn't stop myself. So you know, I, I, I can't say I suffered. I wasn't, but at the same time, when I've been working on something, I'll be up here working like hours and hours, and I stand up, I can hardly stand up <laughs> because, you know, I've been in one position <laughs> for so long. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I suffering that way maybe, but not starving, you know, because because I have a day job, I'm married, yeah. you know, I, it, it's, it's quite a difference there. I think if someone was starving and, and they needed the money, I think that would change things. Then they wouldn't yeah. write just because they were driven, they'd have to make a living. Mm-hmm. So that's really a good point because it's like you're not, the soul is never hungry. You're feeding it the entire yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. It's just that when I say suffering, you are, <laughs> I mean, it's, we, we give up a lot. You're spending hours yes. up there because it's at the expense of something else. Yeah. And, yeah. and so uh, do we need that? To some extent, I think we kind of do. We need that obsessive, single-pointed focus yeah. mm-hmm. that is at the expense of other things for the mm-hmm. art to be as, as, as true to our most authentic self as it can be. Yep. Well, circling back to some of these uh, pop musicians' first albums, you know, is that sense of urgency still apparent in those recordings? You know, is that, that need, that desire... Um, that that hungriness, as I think it's often referred to, is that apparent in the earlier albums? And then once you have a clothing line, then you kind of rest <laughs> on your laurels. You uh, kind of so lose it a little, yeah, because you just need to get it out. I think the ones that stay successful probably hold on to that work ethic, because then it becomes yeah. a work ethic as opposed to driven by 
exterior forces that you're not in control of, um, you yeah. become in control of that motivation. Yeah. Right. My my issue with the whole starving artist thing is that it's become kind of a trope, as we know. And so and that I think has led to musicians and performers being seen as disposable, as we can see by the pandemic. Like so many people of my so many colleagues have left the business altogether because they can't they can't manage and they're not being supported. So I think that trope is is feeding a little bit of that lack of respect for the work that all artists are doing. And, and I think a business mindset can kind of get pushed into that too, where what is the value of this? You know, uh, Robert, you were mentioning earlier, like you just like to capture this performance. And I the immediate thing I was thinking just from a pop mindset, I was like, oh, well, it would just be faster to capture it as quickly as possible. And then you can always edit it in post or whatever, you know, something <laughs> like that. But yeah. like, that's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because it's about a performance. It's about the interaction of musicians. Uh, perhaps it's not about how quickly or how cheaply we can do it or what type of profit or returns we can get on our investment. Um, maybe we're doing it to kind of fill fill a void or or, or to, to feed ourselves, uh, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively, right? Part of what I'm doing and why I'm reaching out to people like you and doing a lot of the promotional side and the business yeah. side of things is something that a lot of my colleagues or most of them, they were not taught how to do this yes. and we don't yes. think to do it because it's a lot yeah. of work to do the, the marketing side Absolutely. and, and the classical music, they don't do it. They put out a recording and then it just sort of sits there and molders and the yeah. current music scene doesn't support the way we make music and the way we consume music, like as, you know, five movement works, you know, all that kind of thing. It's people listen differently, but we're still, that's the, that's the service we have to cope with now. Um, so I'm trying to, blend the the two worlds together in some fashion and that's the i think a a responsibility that i feel to the artists that have performed for me to the composers that have written for me and to everybody's work on this from you know the makeup artists to to rob on on the board like everybody's put something into it and i want to honor that with the you know the um equal amount of work on the other end and so I, I, it may feel like to some people, some purists, that it's selling out or why am I doing all this marketing? Yeah. But it's actually a piece that people, it's, marketing is really just about awareness. And I want people to know that these pieces are here and play yeah. them themselves. And I have a responsibility. I think your marketing is, is a talent, though. I think it's yeah, a talent it equal to what everyone, what other people do. I, I mean, I, I'm in awe all the time. <laughs> I can't get over it. I wouldn't know what to do. Um, Betsy, can you write uh, the next record for Jay? Can you write twelve three-minute pieces, and then you can just <laughs> do just twelve singles? Three minutes that long? That yeah. long? Oh, like that long. Wow. That's how I can promote it. That's how I yeah. can get it on like just like one classic. single at a time. Yeah, three yeah. Uh, three-minute classical pieces that are twelve of them. Just write twelve of them. Yeah. Can, can I recommend two minutes and a half? Because three and a half is really pushing the attention span a bit. I think. I think. That's how you're supposed to release is one single at a time and supposed to draw it out. Like that's the most success dealing with the current streaming system that we have, right? Yeah. So that's why I'm interested in actually looking at the NFTs because then we can actually sell the work direct to the consumer. That that interests me. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, uh, it was great uh, speaking with you. So before I let you go, um, is there a place we can go to find out more about this album and just the music in general that we've heard today on the podcast? 
Yes, uh, my website is fluteinthewild.com, and that'll have all the links to downloading the album directly, streaming it on any platform you'd like. There's uh, images. You can download the um, very beautiful booklet that I had done by Michael Rycraft, and all the credits and information about the pieces are on that website. Uh, and Betsy, where can we go to find out more about you and your music? You could go to my website, which is elizabethrom.com. That'd probably be the best thing. And then uh, the, the Canadian Music Centre. That's uh, C-M-C-C-A-N-A-D-A dot O-R-G. And Robert, can you tell us a little bit about your studio and some of the production you do? Yeah, I'm just uh, continuing on and during, you know, in the pandemic, just doing a lot of uh, live streaming right now. But uh, people can find more about me in the company at societyofsound.ca. Thanks to Elizabeth, Jay, and Robert for sharing their time and music with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out other episodes in the series. And as always, like, subscribe, and leave a comment on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process.